What you are about to hear is a labor of love. Our love is for the music, and the music is for the people. We at Rockstrikes 10 and cnjradio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, and or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artist in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels, or hopefully by the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to Rock He 
Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. All right, we kick things off today on this particular Odds and Ends episode with the great L.A. Guns. That was a song called Killer Mahari which was one of the only new original songs that they put out in 1992 via the Cuts EP, which is mostly cover songs. And I was doing my little research on here because I was like, that's a really cool track there, Killa Mahari. And I always suspected that maybe that was just a song that didn't make it on Hollywood Vampires. It turns out one of the other songs on that EP ain't the same was actually the outtake from Hollywood Vampires. And as someone who hadn't really heard that EP in about 30 years and change, I was like, you could definitely tell that Michael James Jackson did not produce this EP much like he did with Hollywood Vampires. But I don't think that was the point of it. I think the point of this was just to have a little fun, especially as it concerns that it's mostly covers. So you want to be a little loose and raw in production. There's no point in getting a big producer to do something like this, like an EP release. But in doing my research on cuts... Come to find out, man, even if you just look on Wikipedia, you'll notice that like they have extra songs listed for the Japanese track listing. So if anybody has a line on getting a decently affordable Japanese version of Cuts, let me know because, damn, I've never actually heard the bonus songs on there. Because on the domestic version, they do Bowie and Generation X and James Brown. And on the Japanese version, they cover the Ramones, Rock and Roll High School, and the Dam's Love Song. So I gotta hear those. Maybe I'll just contact my old internet buddy, Tracy Guns, right there. We used to be chatmates back in the Metal Sludge days. Anyway, those were the days. But anyway, welcome to The Odds and Ends of 1992, Volume 2. And if you don't know what The Odds and Ends are, you're just going to have to go back and listen to Episode 1, because I'm not going to explain it again. As much as I love any 
anybody who might be tuning in for the first time, but welcome. And much like we did on the previous Odds and Ends episode and all the other ones, going to do a couple of twofers here on the episode to get through it so I can get you to the best albums of 1992, whilst not treating the Odds and Ends like an afterthought because they're a lot of fun and I'm happy to play them here for you. Not really much in the way of tie-ins here, but these next two artists are pure British working class acts and all the massive respect for these two bands, as different as they are style and sound-wise and maybe even approach, I consider them both to be UK legends, and my taste would not even remotely be the same without these two bands. So I definitely appreciate them. We're going to kick off this twofer with one of my first favorite bands, and still one of my favorite bands to this day, Madness. So they put out their first official live album called Madstock, and Madstock is what it says it is. It's It was like a mini festival that they would put on from time to time where they're headlining, and, you know, just have some of their friends play of note. And in this instance, in 1992, they had recorded it for a live album. And it's really hard to find. I don't actually even have a physical copy of this. I had to go listen to this album on YouTube. It's not even streaming on Spotify or any Apple or any of the other places. So I had to YouTube this bad boy. But, you know, it's it's a cool live set. All, all the hits, some of the fan favorites. And as I like to try to do with most live albums or anything of that note or greatest hits... I want to find the anomaly, the the kind of one-off maybe for the album that makes it a little more exclusive. And I found a really cool one right here. Right there at the tail end of the album, they do a cover of definitely a song that was hugely influential in any second or third wave ska band, or even remotely ska or anything like that. Or if you're just into reggae whatsoever, you definitely know a guy like Jimmy Cliff and the influence that The Harder They Come had on the genre overall. Also, all the influence it had on punk as well in later generations. So it makes sense that they would want to cover a song like this. So here you go from Madstock. This is Madness with Jimmy Cliff's The Harder They Come. Oh, 
Searching for the things I want
So I don't have much of a memory of the movie Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. I remember seeing it around 92 or 93. I definitely just saw it on home video. I didn't see it in the theater. The only thing I remotely remember about it is the fact that someone eats it taking a compact disc to the head. So CD foo, as Joe Bob Briggs would say. And the fact that the Cenobites were in a nightclub and that's how that even happened. That's all I can remember of it, other than the fact that Motorhead are so cool that they have two songs on the soundtrack. Of course, you've probably heard Hellraiser, which is not so much a cover, because Lemmy also co-wrote the song with Ozzy, but you may know it as an Ozzy Osbourne song. More on that later. That was the title track to the subtitle of the movie, because they've done both, Hellraiser and Hell on Earth, and that was Hell on Earth. One of the slower Motorhead songs, which... It's not that much of a surprise, especially if you heard the 1916 album, but I gotta say, Lemmy's bass tone during this era was just awesome. I mean, how fat and distorted is that? It just sounds great. There you go. Little Hell on Earth by Motorhead, another great working class band from the UK. And we move over here to a soundtrack that I actually have already represented here on the odds and ends of 1992. On part one, I played you Feed the Monkey by Infectious Grooves which was one of the last songs played in the Encino Man movie. But I had to include this one as well because yeah, I definitely was a huge, massive Motley Crue fan pretty much from 85 on when I really first got into them. And it, honestly, by the time it got to 1991, I was probably a bigger fan than I had ever been of the band. I got the Decade of Decadence tape and I just wore it out. I played it every day. So I distinctly still remember tuning into Headbangers Ball, seeing Lon Friend come on and do definitely a rushed out friend at large. I'm sure he had another one recorded and he had to come in because this was breaking news. First time I heard about the fact that Vince was out of Motley Crue. And man, that, that was devastating. My whole musical world came apart in that one newscast. And that's how 1992 basically kicked off for me musically. So by the time the summer rolled around and Encino Man came out, Vince Neil came out with his first ever solo release. And this was the only musical output from either side of things. So Motley was holed up in the studio all through 1992 and 1993, working on the album with Karabi. And so Vince was the only one to put out anything right off the bat. He like rushed into the studio. This song was written by uh, Tommy Shaw and Jack Blades, who were on a roll as, song, as, as a songwriting team. So it made sense to bring them in. And they did this song right here. I really liked the song when it came out. And at this point, I still wasn't taking sides at all. I, I really didn't take sides much in this split. Uh, because I was a big enough fan, I feel like real fans should give both sides a chance, especially before they even put out anything. But, you know, I enjoy this. It's a fun song. It's a fun party song. It's a perfect summer song, especially in 1992. So, of course, i got to include it here on the odds and ends. This really takes me back right here. Oh, man, having an old man moment right here. But, yeah, it just makes me think of going to see Encino Man. And I definitely bought the tape based on the strength of this song right here. So here you go. Vince Neil's first ever solo song. This is You're Invited But Your Friend Can't Come.
That song definitely takes me back to a simpler time when Polly Shore was on top of the world. And honestly, I was a big Polly guy. Like I used to watch Totally Polly every day, as I probably mentioned on other episodes. But yeah, of course, that was another reason to go see Encino Man if you were a Polly guy. And of course, he's all over the music video for that. If you've never seen it, it's pretty humorous at times. I watched it again recently. It's aged pretty decently, for me at least, for me. Uh, but yeah, that was Vince Neil with You're Invited But Your Friend Can't Come, original version. And I do say original because he did wind up re-recording pretty much the whole song all over again for his first solo album, Exposed. So everything about it really changed. I mean, of course, the arrangement's pretty much exactly the same. But since he had Steve Stevens in the band now, all the guitars are new and there's a new guitar solo on top of it. So they're very different, even though, like I said, the arrangement's the same, but you can definitely tell the difference, and the production is a lot beefier on the exposed version. I'm pretty sure that Shaw Blades just basically produced that track, and I actually did find some credits here inside my CD that I still own. That is basically Vince Neil singing for Damn Yankees, because that guy, what's his name, Michael Cardalone or whatever his name is, he plays drums on that track. So, And of course, Shaw Blades play all the other instruments on it and do the background vocals with them, so... There's some personnel facts right there that I like to throw in. And I didn't do a twofer because I feel like these next two songs tie in a lot better to each other. And if I split them up, it just would seem kind of weird, actually. These two bands definitely are on the short list of, when you talk about 90s rock, these bands will no doubt be mentioned in the first five bands, probably, if, if you're polling most people. If you say, hard rock in the 90s, these two bands get mentioned pretty much in the first five goes talking about Nine Inch Nails and Nirvana. Now, you know, Nine Inch Nails, of course, Pretty Hate Machine did really well, and they were on an upswing, and I don't even know if anybody could have projected just how big they were about to get a couple of years down the road from here. But in 1992, they put out a couple of really cool EPs that tie into each other, Broken and Fixed. And some people would still say to this day that Broken is probably the heaviest thing they've ever put out. I might be one of those people, although I'd say it's pretty on par with Downward Spiral and Fragile. But, of course, they, this is them getting away from any really kind of the techno-based stuff, like the Depeche Mode kind of sound that, you know, hell, even Ministry was doing in the 80s, that sound. But this is them just completely almost becoming an organic rock and roll band, even though, yes, of course, they still had the keyboards, but it was a different kind of approach. But, yeah, man, if you've never heard Broken, then check it out, man, because... Yeah, Wish. I remember Wish even winning the Grammy that year for Best Metal, which shows you where they were going. And, you know, I talked about Jethro Tull earlier, but I, I feel like it was definitely a valid win that Nine Inch Nails would win Best Metal that year because that song, Wish, is really badass. And I'm not going to play it here because I, I have a use for it on a show coming up down the road here. But equally awesome on this EP is this one right here. This one always gets me going. So here you go. To kick off this two for... This is Nine Inch Nails with Physical.
All right. That is definitely one of my all-time favorite Nirvana recordings right there. One of my favorite things they ever did. And I like a handful of their songs. Not a big fan overall. But that version of Turnaround, that's a Devo cover right there. And that was originally on the Harmoning EP that did come out in 1992. It was put out overseas and it never came out in the States. I mean, of course, people imported the shit out of it, or at least they tried to. But Geffen definitely figured out, hey, we need a Christmas product for Nirvana because they're one of the biggest bands in the world, which is just funny to think that a year ago, like towards the end of 1991, the fact that they were becoming that big a year later, they're like, we need a Christmas product for these guys. So they put out this comp called Incesticide, which was basically just the outtakes and the BBC sessions, like the thing that you'd put out if you had a lot of this stuff laying around. So very smart for Geffen to do that. And there's some fun stuff to be had on there. But yeah, I really, really like that Devo cover, Turnaround. So yeah, I hadn't heard Incesticide in forever, so that was a real nice surprise to hear that one again. So I kind of fell in love with that version all over again. And you cover a Devo song right. You're pretty cool in my book at some point. So yeah. And before that, of course, once again, we did Physical, and in parentheses, Your So, by Nine Inch Nails. So from all of that, I'm going to take you all the way back to the first ever recording of Elvis Presley. Now, why am I including this in the odds and ends of 1992? Well, simply put, this version had never been officially released ever until the year 1992. So it counts for the odds and ends of 1992. So... The very first recording that Elvis ever did apparently was done in Lubbock, Texas in 1953. He was playing a show out there. I guess he booked some studio time. So as far as the history of this recording, and this is that famous recording that Jack White apparently purchased a few years ago and has put out since then as a collector's item there. So the A side of this single had already been put out on a comp decades ago, but the B side had never been put out until it's called Elvis, like it's this 50s box set where it's pretty much everything he did in the 50s on this one box set, including full-length versions of his first couple of records, all the single releases, and then they get into like outtakes, and then there's like a whole disc of stuff that never came out. So this song heads up that unreleased disc. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, you hear this, and it, it almost sounds older than 1953 for my ears. And if I had to guess, it sounds like a song that the Ink Spots may have recorded back in the day because that solo section has the, the talking part of it, the part where the singer really talks to the audience and not so much sings. But it's just really cool to hear Elvis basically singing into a can when he hadn't done anything before this. So I'm including it here because I think it's really cool. And just in case you've never heard this, and also proof you have to start somewhere, this is Elvis Presley with That's When Your Heartaches Begin. If you find your sweetheart in the arms of a friend That's when your heartaches begin When dreams of a lifetime must come to an end As when your heartaches begin Love is a thing 
friend into your love affair. That's the end of your sweetheart. That's the end of it. Oh, when your heartaches begin If you find your sweetheart In the arms of your best friend Brother, that's That's when your heartaches begin And when dreams, when dreams of a lifetime must all come to an end, yeah, that's that's when your heartaches begin. You see, love is a thing that you never can share. Bring a friend into your love affair. That's the end. But he, like so many other white leaders, appears to have missed the point. Once the riot started, uh, it went like a forest fire. Uh, it, it started in a lot of different places at pretty much the same time. Five hundred FBI agents. Coming after us with a license to kill 30 mil, claiming it's just a drug bust. They're thinking they're making a fly switch, replace the double for the wig. 30. Reach up and reach, not a reach. Power to the people in the beach. Some people are accused, some people are crime, some people get away with losing my rhyme. Uh, they don't like where I'm coming from, so they play dumb. Dumb, dickety, dumb, dickety, dumb. Well, I'm telling you what they do, everybody plays a fool while the real feet cools in a pool. Yeah. He got the finger on the war button. Talking loud, ain't saying nothing. TV got him bigger than life. All he needs is a knife. Like you're the brother like 
none of us rap. Noriega head back. Yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer, it's just a room without cuffs. How the hell do we get stuck in the back of a cell on the aisle? Ain't it wild? What's criminal? Actually, a very decent tie-in right there with those two in a row. Because, of course, if you're any kind of fan of Public Enemy, you'll remember the infamous Elvis diss in Fight the Power. And even Chuck D later on said years after the fact, he's like, that's not me saying I wasn't a fan of Elvis and his music. It's just trying to squash the narrative of giving anybody a pass for saying anything remotely racist at some point. And I still don't know if that was ever confirmed on Elvis's side, but... The idea that a lot of people of that time who were raised in a certain way still needs to be called out on the carpet if you're not willing to evolve. But anyway, all social commentary aside, that was Public Enemy with Hazy Shade of Criminal, which is definitely by far the best song off of their Greatest Misses compilation, which is a collection of outtakes and some live tracks as well. And honestly, you have to be a pretty hardcore fan of Public Enemy to really want to get this or enjoy it. But I do feel like Hazy Shade of Criminal is definitely an overlooked song in their catalog. That song easily could have been on Apocalypse 91. I'm still not sure why it wasn't, but maybe it hadn't been recorded at that point. Who knows? But there you go. Elvis, followed by Public Enemy. That's how we roll here on Rock Strikes 10. And let's finish off with a twofer that makes absolutely no sense, other than the fact that these were one-offs that were released in the year 1992, So this perennial favorite here of Rock Strikes 10 put out their very first EP in 1992. All 11 minutes and change of this one right here, which was released on San Francisco label Lookout Records, 
which makes sense because they're a band from San Francisco, but it's weird seeing the lookout label on this record because they wound up being one of the bands that would definitely define Epitaph Records. And I'm talking about Rancid. You know, after Matt and Tim had finished up with Operation Ivy, they started this new band, Rancid. And if you didn't know, if you're not like a huge fan of the band, that's fine. Get into them for sure. But Lars Fredrickson wasn't even in the band when they started out. He wasn't on their first full length either. So they are straight up three piece at this point. Just raw, man. And just I'm sure it's just one of those things they go in, do the one take and they put out this thing. And and this EP got enough buzz to where there, there was a bidding war for them for a long time. This is Well, I remember reading articles like that there was an actual bidding war on Rancid, even though they wound up going with Epitaph, which, of course, we find out later is a Warner subsidiary. So if you're on Epitaph, you still get to keep your cred whilst being under, you know, the major umbrella. But yeah, what they did with this 11 minutes and getting them that kind of unlikely buzz and getting them out there. So it's definitely an important recording for me as a fan. So I definitely wanted to include something here because it's relevant for 1992. So I'm going to play the second track off of this one right here, my personal favorite off of their first five-song EP right here. This is Rancid, and the apropos title for one of their first recordings. This is Battering Ram. Thank you. 
I still remember this fact all these years later because I remember becoming decently intrigued with Susie and the Banshees and especially Susie Sue 
when I was really hardcore on the Sex Pistols. And that was only about 20 years ago when I had bought the Filth and the Fury documentary and finding out that Susie Sue was basically in their entourage back in the day. And she used to be known as Sue Catwoman because she actually like put on cat makeup and had the whole thing going on. She looked like an actual cat person, like a, like a hybrid. So she was Sue Catwoman and all these years later, and I guess she had done this on a few records and people knew that she was really good at recreating cat noises. And that is the sole reason, I mean, obviously a good band too, as one of the big reasons why Tim Burton actually requested that Susie and the Banshees record the new song to represent the Batman Returns movie. Now, that's a, that's a bold move because, yeah, Susie and the Banshees had a pretty decent name by this point in 1992, but it's not like they were on the Prince level right there. So think about it that way. Tim Burton's doing his big follow-up to this hugely successful film and the movie where Prince did the entire soundtrack. And now he's just going with not doing that approach again, but the one band he asked to record a new song for the new Batman movie with Susie and the Banshees is like, Hey, can you, you put a cat noise in there? So that's, that's the whole background on that. But that was Susie and the Banshees with face to face. And yes, two different sounding bands, almost with equal punk rock credibility. So there you have it. That's finishing off the show here tonight. Hope you enjoyed it. Simple enough. We got one more odds and ends of 1992 to do before we get to the big mega albums list. So stay tuned, stay current, tell your friends. Until then, stay tuned for my better half, Nola, with the plugs, followed by the best damn outro song in all the podcasting business. Take it away, Nola. We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, we give our cats Ruby and Ripley a treat. We are on Twitter at rockstrikes 10 and the direct email is rockstrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have Rockstrikes 10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high-quality, soft-as-heck, next-level branded shirt and a button. Send us an email or direct message for more details or to order. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening liking, subscribing, and sharing. Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going all the way back to episode number one. While you're on cnjradio.com, check out some of these other quality shows. The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative. The Last Theater, starring Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. And the I Am Vinyl podcast with Pete LaRussa and occasionally Joey. We also highly recommend that you check out our good friend Mark Striegel, who can now be heard exclusively on Sirius XM as part of Ozzy's Boneyard and Hair Nation. Last, but certainly not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent ya. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun.
post-game show is brought to you by... Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it.